0: So, um, our first panel of the day is going to build on that, and we're going to be explaining what the current threat landscape looks like, um, where it's coming from, how the financial sector can respond particularly, and indeed whether these are new threats or just new ways of executing old scams. Uh, Joining me is an illustrious panel who uh, can share viewpoints from um, various different angles. I'm joined, first of all, by John Cusack, who is Standard Standard Charters Global Financial Crime Head. Um, Then uh, Tom Keating, who is RUCI's director of of its Financial Crime Center and is also a former investment banker. Uh, We then have uh, Robert Hannigan, who is a special advisor on cybersecurity at Hiscox and is also the European Executive Chairman at Blue Voyant. And last but by no means least is Sahir from um, BAE Systems, who you heard um, so eloquently just before. Rob, perhaps I can um, start with you and... Could you address what you think cyber threats really look like today? Are we seeing particular trends and particular trends within the financial services sector?
1: Um, yeah, thanks, Carolyn. I, I don't want to repeat what Sahar set out really clearly, I thought, just now. So let me just expand on a couple of those trends, which I think are the ones, well, certainly in, in my world we're worrying about. Um, well, we all know the massive volume uh, increase over the last few years and that's a problem in itself because all the old stuff keeps happening But I think the rise in sophistication particularly from crime groups, which Saha touched on is is really uh, impressive in its own way um, And we're seeing them scanning for vulnerabilities on a large scale and then crafting um, exploits at a large scale against those particular weak weak institutions um, and that's something that has emerged over the last few years I think the other thing that they are already getting into, and as Saha says, will certainly get into, is supply chain and, and vendor compromise. And every company I talk to is, if it regards itself as reasonably well protected, is worrying about its vendors. <coughs> so the, the soft way into a company is through the supply chain. And that soft, soft is vendors. And we saw some examples yesterday uh, of, of a compromise um, through the law firm of a, of a particular large institution. And the governments have issued some examples in the last couple of years of state attacks in that way, but it isn't just states, it's uh, it's criminal groups at scale. Um, and the supply chain, I, I find very interesting because I, I think it is the thing of the future, as Saha says, and it, some of that will be hard baked into software and hardware. Uh, I came across one example for a company I was working for in South America, actually, um, where uh, It was clear at the end of the investigation that a criminal group had placed a person in a software company that was supplying a particularly large bank. Um, And I think that's the kind of creativity that we associate with organized crime groups in the sort of the great uh, years of of drugs uh, innovation uh, and narco um, crime in the in the 80s and 90s. You know, they're applying that up that scale of money and ingenuity and (coughs) innovation to cyber and they will get better and better at it. So Vendors um, and vendor security and supply chain, I think, are the big uh, problem. And insiders, of course, are the one thing I would have added to that list on the Slido, I think. Uh, So many attacks are either um, the result of poor uh, security behavior internally, so inadvertent um, breaches, or more more, more and more we're seeing insiders, either because they're disgruntled or more often because they're incentivized by um, corruption, by large criminal groups paying a lot of money, willing to give access to the network. Uh, And I think that's a a real challenge for uh, companies because it's quite difficult to bear down on. Uh, It's a mixture of HR and security and technology that most large institutions find hard to put together. So those are the ones I see changing. Um, Just very briefly on on targeting, Uh, again, I think because criminals always see defence and then look for the softer way in. In financial services, a trend towards looking at family offices and small investment houses, because they may control massive wealth, but they have many of the the features of a small business. They're small staff, uh, they probably don't have a large IT budget, certainly don't have their own staff. um, And they are a wonderful way in uh, to very large amounts of wealth and larger institutions. So seen quite a lot of that recently. Um, Who is doing it? Just on your final question, Caroline, um, absolutely agree with Saha. It is predominantly criminal groups, as the Slido shows. The worrying thing is there's an overlap between criminal groups and states. So the reason they can thrive is they're based in states that either have very poor law enforcement or totally corrupt law enforcement. And in some cases, governments are using them as a proxy to make life difficult for um, countries they're unhappy with and it's, it makes it very difficult for those of us uh, involved in the, the other side to actually bear down on this. And I'm afraid there's going to be a rise in that um, because the the world order is is not at a, a point where we can cooperate very easily on, on law enforcement. Um, so we're going to see more of that, I'm afraid.
0: Okay, thank you. And, and Tom, could I just ask, is there anything you want to add just about that overlap that we're seeing between um, organized criminals and state actors? The,
2: the idea that Raising funds, um, if you like, through the back door. Um, I'm going to steal John's example from earlier earlier on. But you know, you don't go in and hold a gun up to the teller anymore and say, "Give the money." You you come in through the through the through the wires. I think that's something that we will see more and more of, and it's much easier uh, to, to to raise the kind of finance that perhaps you need for your nuclear ambition uh, in a in a way that um, is being restricted through traditional methods. So. For, for for sure, the the the, the overlap between states uh, and organised crime groups uh, is is going to is going to increase, and you know the financial sector um, is offering rich pickings and will only offer continued and growing uh, pickings in that regard. But I think, as we'll talk about, I'm not sure that's necessarily uh, the biggest threat that the uh, that the financial sector faces right now.
0: Okay, and John, if I could just quickly ask. Um, Rob mentioned um, the insider threat, which you know is, isn't new. Um, I was just wondering, what, um, we, we will get on uh, later in the discussion just about uh, more traditional threats. But in terms of the insider threat, is there much that banks can do about that? Sure there
3: is. Sure there is. Thanks for the, um, the invitation. Um, as Tom mentioned there, um, whenever I talk about cyber and financial crime, I, I usually put up a, a, a little graphic. Um, which has a man walking into a bank and puts the gun to the teller's head and says, give me all your money. And she says, you know, it's much easier to do this online, <laughs> which which really tells you a lot about the development. This is an old cr- kind of crime that we're seeing. Um, fraud's been around forever and has been a big number in relation to uh, criminals um, uh, interested in it, but it's become much easier in a sense because of, the cyber tools that are available and because of the criminal actors who are moving away from traditional, or still staying with traditional threats, but moving into and using these tools. And Rob says, I think the the connection between state actors, traditional, very wealthy and successful organized criminal gangs with now cyber crime as a service and bringing all those three things together uh, should make us all extremely concerned around the future um, and the capabilities that are being joined together like never before. And, and again, absolutely, the way to get inside organisations to a certain extent is to place people in there or make some people worth their while. So um, yeah, it's a it's a it's a real real problem, real concern.
0: Okay, um, Sarah. So how- you um, gave a fascinating discussion to open the morning. I was just wondering if you might build on that a little bit to talk to the audience just about new threats and techniques and tactics that um, you're, you're seeing. I thought it was really fascinating that you mentioned um, the, the techniques are becoming more aggressive, um, that uh, scammers are quite willing to sort of break the bank, I think you said, uh, in order to, to achieve their aims. Could you, could you talk a little bit about that? Sure.
4: Uh, so I think um, in the cases that I discussed and about the particular actors, so this is still an anomaly. This wouldn't be the norm. Um, this is a state actor uh, that has branched into criminal operations um, beyond espionage, which isn't something we've seen necessarily from other ones. Uh, there are criminals uh, who have uh, who are kind of high-end and more sophisticated, uh, but generally they'll tend to be uh, using kind of the age-old techniques, phishing, uh, still, still effective, been around forever. Um, and so, and, and again, um, kind of beyond the traditional means of, of crime, uh, when you're looking at cybercrime, uh, a lot of the reasons for this, you know, plausible deniability, but also the scale that you can kind of reach with these kind of, you could spend out a mass, mass phishing email and, and scam hundreds and hundreds of people. Um, and uh, what, the other thing that I would um, mention is that the accessibility and kind of availability of the tools and techniques um, to carry out these attacks is, has proliferated so much. So whether that's on, uh, online, um, and as they were saying, uh, selling uh, these uh, kind of uh, tools or, or um, kind of techniques as a service, um, and hiring uh, kind of malicious hackers to carry out the attacks um, for you. Uh, but these kind, of, uh, these kind of tactics are very, very much um, public and available. And if you look for them, you'll find them. Um, So, that's what I would say about evolution. Um, It's definitely getting more organized, um, and we've seen this trend kind of over the years. It's not so much individuals anymore, um, but they're becoming a lot more coordinated. And again, the overlap with kind of traditional crime, um, as I pointed out with uh, money laundering, um, uh, that makes it particularly uh, interesting, and especially because different uh, jurisdictions have different uh, rules that govern the space. Um, and uh, different entities that are in charge of investigating. So uh, the overlap is really significant there, and there's a lot of coordination required um, on, on our parts. Okay.
0: And Tommy, you wanted to come in. There. Yeah, I was just
2: going to say I think it's important to distinguish between the financial sector uh, as a victim, the hacking of ATMs uh, and the stuff that we were hearing about earlier on, but also the, the financial sector as a facilitator, as you know, the, the launderer of the proceeds um, of these uh, of, of these these crimes. Um, and you know, perhaps uh, you know, we can harden systems. We can, we can you know, try and deal with insiders and, and all of that. But fundamentally, you know, the financial sector finds itself on the front line in the fight against money laundering. Uh, and the question is, you know, how can we help financial institutions contribute to the laundering the proceeds of cybercrime uh, in, a, in a more effective way than perhaps uh, is the case today? And you know, We have a regulatory environment which was established you know, in the 1980s uh, and when cyber risk or anything thought about, so I think there's a there's a question around facilitation of um, unwitting, mm-hmm. but the facilitation of the laundering the proceeds of cyber crime, which we need to consider as well.
0: Okay, and uh, I know you you've given evidence to um, a parliamentary select committee quite recently, where you talked about sort of money laundering through capital markets as well, which seems to be uh, a, a particular problem.
2: Uh, yes, um, you know I uh, wasn't very popular with. Uh, Mr. Toome, when I said this, but, fundament- <laughs> but fundamentally, not only do we have a system uh, that was created at a time when you know, it took five days to clear a check, uh, but we also have a a capability, a response which you know doesn't necessarily understand what a mirror trade looks like. It you know, doesn't understand what a you know a call, and a put option, you know all this sort of stuff. So we're asking we're asking the system to respond to something that in many cases it doesn't it doesn't fully understand. And I think you. Know, there's a risk that, that cybercrime uh, falls into that category if we're not careful.
0: Okay, okay, thank you. And Rob, uh, in terms of, of what you've just had there, I mean, can we can it still be the case that we're still falling for phishing attacks, for instance?
1: Yeah, I'm afraid so. Um, I mean, to be fair to people, phishing has got much more sophisticated. Yeah. So it they used to be badly spelt and it was pretty obvious. Um, now people are putting a lot of effort into it um, and socially engineering it. So researching the target, looking at their social media, looking at their family, and then crafting a phishing email that looks like it's come from something they would want to click on Um, and that often gets people particularly senior people frankly um, and uh, it's very difficult to guard against a phishing attack that comes from a real person so if you can subvert the supply chain and get in through a vendor and hack their email account and get them to send or you know on their behalf an email um, with added value it's really difficult to defend against that so um, not impossible but it's tough so it is still a favoured way
0: Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm suddenly thinking about um, this chap who calls himself the email prankster, who um, I think got uh, Mark Carney, Jess said I'm suddenly trying to remember if Bill Winters replied to an email. I don't think he did. I think you'll so be happy to, uh, happy to hear. Um, but it, it sort of illuminated, although he, he was doing it more for, I think, publicity, it also illuminated that CEOs um, perhaps... Oh are uh, the, the most high-profile people that need training in this regard. But, I mean, how do you, how do you approach that at Standard Chartered? So, actually,
3: it's, it's very interesting. So, I don't think Bill did reply. No, I didn't. Uh, Bill, um, <laughs> Bill, like all of us, 80,000 employees get tested. Actually, we have a, a cybersecurity department that tries to trick us into phishing. Yeah. Um, so, we get regularly sent by our internal people, really highly um, engineered, interesting links. And whenever we do, we have to go back to school. So we all get a report on all of us as to whether or not we hit these and if we do and we get a increasingly smaller number of people that are hitting these, even these really interesting ones. So so we get tested and uh, we have to pass our tests so we're all aware of it. Uh, when people fall foul of it then they have to go back to school and learn even more.
0: Excellent. Um, we've been hearing so far um, this morning uh, about uh, cyber attacks, cyber security, possibly the new threats but is it fair to say that the, the old threats are just as prominent and just as worrisome for someone in your position? Yeah,
3: absolutely, absolutely. I mean, obviously, uh, you know, these days, cyber, blockchain, um, uh, virtual currency, unless you put those on the um, agenda, then, you know, sometimes people don't report it, right? But there's a lot of other things that are still really important that are out there. Yes. Fighting financial crime, financial crime is probably the 10th largest industry in the world, it's probably the most profitable, the most profitable with a 0.02% tax rate up, which is pretty low tax rate. That's the collection or cleanup rate at best that there is. You think about going back five, ten years, the top five acquisitive crimes, about two trillion dollars worth of proceeds. All these numbers are, are not accurate, but they're as close as we know to being accurate. Those five major crimes counterfeit piracy, drug trafficking, um, uh, human trafficking, illegal gambling and uh, smuggling, oil, gas, tobacco. Those are the top five Acquisitive crimes, they're still here with us. Um, but increasingly, you have this this fraud and cybercrime, which has joined that list. So those classic ones are still there, uh, but cybercrime is right up there. New numbers on cybercrime, what is it, six, 600 billion a year? The cost of cybercrime, $6 trillion a year to protect ourselves from this and or to pay up. So it's a massive, massive problem. But let's not forget all the other problems, too. And, The the money that's generated from all those other crimes, those organized criminal gangs that take 50% of all that traditional money that are based transnationally and work with each other are now working with cyber criminals too, and it's that connection between the two that really concerns me. Mm -hmm. Um, And state actors coming and getting involved in that. We haven't won the battle against traditional financial crime, Mm -hmm. and we're not winning the battle against the future financial crime. Uh, There are better ways of doing it than we're doing now. Working individually in a bank is one thing. Banks files 2 million SARs a year globally to regulators, to authorities, which is really important. But a SAR, after the event, is not going to help you if you've been defrauded out of your bank accounts way too late. So the old ways of responding to fighting financial crime need to be revised um, and quickly revised in order to be able to combat the new types of threats.
0: Do you think the SARs regime is fit for purpose?
2: No, I think Tom
3: can answer that
0: question. <laughs> Tom.
2: Uh, the, like I said, I mean, you know, we, we continue to operate a system that was uh, created at a time when the, the, the threats were very, uh, were very different. Um, I'm, my, my Brexit hedge has just arrived in the post, my Irish passport. But you know, there's the joke, isn't there, that you say to uh, an Irishman, please can you tell me the way to the station? And he'll say, well, I wouldn't start here. And that's, that's effectively uh, where, where we are with financial crime. If you had a blank sheet of paper uh, and asked someone to come up with the, the, the most effective system, it wouldn't look anything like what we have today. And I think one of the things, and I'm not asking the questions, but I'm, I'm going to sort of uh, prod you to ask uh, Rob this. I think there's a lot we can learn from the way that uh, other industries, other big data industries, which is what the financial sector is, other big data industries are approaching security issues. So it, it strikes us and one of the things that we think about at Rusey is what can we learn from the way in which uh, the state and the telecoms companies, for example, have a relationship because, you know, they're all dealing with big data. If I use my iPhone on the border with Syria in Turkey, I'm pretty certain that someone in the UK will know I've used my phone to make a phone call. If I do a banking transaction, we're relying on my bank reporting to the National Crime Agency or to the FIU that Tom Keating has made a transaction in, uh, in, in Gaziantep or somewhere like that. So you know, I, I just think that the, the, somebody needs to be brave enough to take the system and say, look, this simply isn't working. And nibbling at the edges is moving deck chairs on the Titanic. And someone needs to have the chutzpah to get up and and do that. Mm -hmm. Rob,
0: do you want to come in?
1: Well, I mean, I think it is a great question. Um, And I think the difficulty is partly jurisdiction. So the the, the way um, uh, the legal framework internationally works doesn't really meet the cyber age where they don't respect borders Um, and many of the companies are based in the US anyway the -the over-the-top providers Um, it takes uh, agreement really between companies and governments and there are big privacy and civil liberties um, considerations which uh, excite some countries more than others probably less so here Um, so it's not straightforward I think UK governments trying some experiments on what we call active cyber defense at scale for the whole country and starting with government that's going really well but to be really effective you would need to do that on an international scale and that could take a while
0: okay um we're talking about uh, borders and as it's september 2018 and you're at the ft uh there's only so long we can go before we mention brexit um tom uh you were part of a panel that gave evidence to the Treasury Select Committee as to whether Brexit might heighten uh, the UK's vulnerability to financial crime. Um, is there any key themes you might want to tease out for the audience in terms of that? Uh, you know,
2: we're, we're in an invidious position because you have, um, you know, this, this attempt to, well, we, Global Britain will be this um, country which will be doing trade with all sorts of places around the world uh, which perhaps haven't been priorities uh, you know, previously. So you've got the, you know, the president of Turkey coming to Downing Street one day. You've got the president of Azerbaijan coming the other day. Uh, you know, Dr. Liam Fox trotting around the world to, to all sorts of places, which don't necessarily represent uh, clean places to, to to do business. And I think uh, the the to, to steal another uh, quote from someone else, but you know, uh, Duncan Hames at um, Transparency International always talks about you know, do we want to be a buccaneer or or a beacon? And I think in the context of of financial crime, clearly we want to try and be a beacon. We want to be a sort of place where you know the rule of law matters, that people come here to do or to want to do business with the UK because of the the rule of law. Um, but I think it will present us with tremendous challenges. It will present present us with challenges on information sharing, you know, with partners who perhaps start to see us in 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 a, in a different light. So, for me, um, uh, yeah, there will there will be huge risks inherent if we are going to go down the path. Um, that perhaps you know, the government suggests we should go down in terms of future future trade relationships. And if you're, a, if you're a financial institution, and John can talk about this, if you're a financial institution that has its feet in all these different countries around the world, just ask them how challenging it is to manage that kind of cross-border financial crime um, risk.
0: Yeah, well, John, obvious question. I mean, Standard Chartered is known for its uh, footprint in emerging markets. How, how do you manage those kind of risks?
3: So as, as Tom says, I think the... Um, the more partnerships we have, the more successful we will be. Partnerships are increasingly being started. I mean, the UK Gimlet was one of the first ones. There's something similar in Hong Kong, something similar in Singapore. There's um, there's a really good cooperation in 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 the Netherlands, for example, and increasingly in Australia, whereby banks and law enforcement are getting together and sitting down talking about real threats. There isn't anything that jumps across between public and private, all domestic, and mostly in you know OECD countries. So. So that's, that's got to change, not only domestic partnerships between public and private sector, but then the linkages across international jurisdictions because that's what the criminals are doing. You know, The criminals are involved in three or four jurisdictions every time they act in a material way. And if you are just going to cooperate and share information on a domestic basis, we will continue to lose the fight.
0: Okay. One thing that strikes me uh, as, as pertinent is when I speak to, to policy makers and regulators, it's not that they're satisfied as to where banks are in the fight against financial crime, but I think there's a realisation that banks have done quite a lot in recent years to try and better their defences. And actually, they're most worried about financial market infrastructure. I think their concern is that if, be it a hostile state, or organised criminals really wanted to do us harm, actually, you'd you'd target payment systems, FMI. Um, Rob, is that something that you've thought about particularly and is there anything that we could do about that? Uh,
1: yes, it is It is the biggest worry. I think payment systems in general and um, you know, the Ticketmaster and BA, we don't know the details of the BA hack but it looked like exactly that kind of uh, uh, attack on payment systems with a, a vendor issue because it was looks like third party script running on a payment platform. So absolutely uh, that's that's where criminals are interested because that's where the money is and it's vulnerable. Uh, the other thing I'd add in just to be really gloomy is that we see the early early signs of people corrupting data or putting out false data to manipulate uh, the market. And I think that we will see more of that in the future. It's a great way of affecting somebody's share price uh, at scale and very, very cheap to do. So uh, there are already signs of that and I think there'll be more to come. Well, right,
0: in terms of fake news, but yeah, market Yeah, loading. fake news
1: or fake data or tweet data. One tweet from the White House, yeah. stock yeah, prices. <laughs>
0: The, the Bank of England does the CBest testing for for banks. Do you think that other parts of the financial sector need to be sort of brought into that kind of testing role?
1: I think it's yes. It's a, CBest is a good thing. It's mm. it's uh, it's further to go. I think it's those who've used it would say it's a sort of baseline. Mm-hmm. It's not a particularly sophisticated um, test. It needs to go much further to meet the kind of evolving threats that we're seeing. Mm. But um, it, it's a good initiative as a start. Mm.
0: And John, have you have you got experience of that and of CBEST? How does it compare to to other countries, United States, for instance, in terms of their stress testing of cyber defences?
3: Yes, yeah, so I think it's catching up. I think it's catching up. I think it certainly uh, starts in the right place. And I think that, that the banks, actually the banks of the UK and the authorities of the UK are... You know, there's no, it, it, we call it an anti-competitive, it's not a competitive sport, this. Mm. You know, when it comes to cyber defenses, when it comes to actually fighting financial crime. So I think the UK is doing well. I think the US is doing well. I think there's a couple of other countries, but not too many. Mm-hmm. Um, so progress is being made. I think we're we're moving forward, but still a lot more to do.
5: The
0: authorities say that part of the problem is that um, hitherto f- uh, fin- the financial sector has been quite reticent about sharing details uh, when there's been an attack. Do you, do you sense that? Um, your your peers and rivals are getting better about talking to each other about what they're seeing.
3: Yeah, I think I think so. I think the uh, we, you know we talk a lot. Um, we also have to respect the law and privacy rights. Mm-hmm. So there are certain channels upon which we can share information. But when it comes to specific and provide precise customer data, we cannot.
1: Mm-hmm.
3: So we can talk about typologies. We can talk about threats. We can talk about what we're seeing. But when it comes to specific examples and cases much more difficult for us to get together and share. There are some laws around the world which make it easier for us to do that. They don't really exist um, in places like uh, the UK and elsewhere, and actually we've lobbied for changes uh, to accommodate some of that, which will be which would be helpful.
0: What kind of changes are you talking well, about?
3: Increase um, information sharing between um, the private sector, um, what we call equivalent section 314B of the Patriots in the US. Um, we hope to get that in the UK, actually elsewhere as well, uh, which would make life, I think, a lot easier. We could work together with my peer institutions on a much more bilateral and interactive basis, which would be very
2: helpful.
0: Mm. Tom, do you have
5: any thoughts? Yeah, I
2: mean, I think the, the most important uh, two words from, say, from your, your presentation on the very last slide, I think you talked about community security. And fundamentally, I think if we don't acknowledge that this is a, this is a challenge that can only be uh, tackled collaboratively, uh, and if we don't do everything we can to come to that, uh, that, mm. that, that position, then we'll, we'll fail. And I find it, you know, I find it quite interesting um, how, I actually think in the cyber world, yeah. the, the idea of collaboration has moved miles ahead of, of, of where we are in the financial crime world. We're still tiptoeing towards collaboration. Yes, we have the Joint money Laundering Intelligence Task Force in the UK, as, uh, as John mentioned, and we have, sit, there are similar... Uh, initiatives around the world. I was in Lusaka two weeks ago, and guess what? They have a public-private partnership in, in Lusaka. Who would who to thunk it? But the, the you know, people are getting are starting to get together and work together. But until we can create the kind of cross-border uh, linkages that John was referring to, then particularly where we're talking about you know, cross-border, almost kind of borderless crimes like cybercrime, we we'll, we we almost might not might as well not bother um, because we'll very quickly get to a border. We'll have to. Enter into a mutual legal assistance uh, request to another country. Eighteen months later, we might or might not get a get a response. And actually, the UK is one of I think one of the worst offenders. It's always interesting to go around the world and say, "So, you know, how how are your relationships with, with the UK when it comes to fighting financial crime?" Well, you know, we're still waiting to hear back. Mm. Um, so the 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 inability um, for for all the for all the reasons that, that Rob mentioned, but the inability to make this a cohesive response. Means that you know we 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 basically will will fail.
0: Okay, okay. So we've heard a lot of doom and gloom uh, <laughs> in the nicest possible way. What can be done? Um, it, perhaps I can ask each of you um, if you could wave a magic wand three remedies that um, government policymakers or whoever should be should be thinking about right now.
3: Sure. So I think I've mentioned them really. So we've got to modernise the fight against financial crime. Right. This is not. 1986 when we invented this stuff, this is now 2018. So we have a lot of capability. We have a huge amount of resources that we throw at this already. So let's utilize all of that and let's modernize significantly, reflecting the things we've said. Uh, We need to have international cooperation, we need public-private partnerships. We need to employ and deploy RegTech smartly into our programs. And we need to, um, to quote somebody else's phrase, we need to fight financial crime uh, as if it's not running a restaurant for the benefit of the health inspector, but for the diner. Right? The diner is law enforcement and they need to tell us what they want and they need to do things with it that is really productive so that we can have a much more effective fight against financial crime.
0: Thank you. Tom? Uh,
2: leadership, ownership and prioritisation. The UK's um, uh, mutual value, mutual valuation by the Financial Action Task Force will be published in late November, early December. Um, and... I, you know, one of the one of the things that I, I suspect we will we will discover is that you know, fighting financial crime, whatever the government might say, however many times it might say the UK will be a hostile place, mm-hmm. I noticed the, you know, the FT reported that uh, you know, Theresa May had uh, said on the way to New York yesterday that the threat of a crackdown on financial crime was having an impact. Well, why why didn't we crack down on it rather than <laughs> just threatening to crack down on it? Um, I think, but ownership to me is is very important. We have a we have a minister who is the minister for security and financial crime. Yeah. Well, you know, when people are being poisoned on the streets of my hometown, um, you know, not surprisingly, his priority is, the, is security. It's mm-hmm. counter-terrorism. And with the best will in the world, you can't, I don't think, address financial crime as a part-time adjunct job. So ownership, someone who gets up every morning and thinks, you know, I, my responsibility today is only fighting financial crime. That is what I will be judged on. And that is what I care about seven days a, a week. And then, and then, as I say, prioritization. Mm. Um, if we don't prioritize this, uh, if we don't get up some momentum uh, in tackling financial crime from wherever it comes, then it'll just be a stop-start game, uh, and we, we will we'll make no progress.
0: Um, before I bring Robin Sahir in, I just want to touch on um, Salisbury. Um, it seems in the last few months there have been a sort of wave of initiatives and announcements around um, financial crime, particularly money laundering, for instance. And that that seems to be since the Salisbury attack, because uh, I think Boris Johnson sort of quite explicitly said we want to hit Russians in the pocket and the UK... Whilst it's still part of the EU, you can't impose unilateral economic sanctions. Do you get the sense that this actually might be a game changer? That, that it's I, a, it's being tackled for geopolitical yeah, reasons.
2: Yeah, I mean, look, I, I I hope I hope I hope it is. Where the, obviously the government is rethinking or is relooking at the whole investor visa issue. Mm. You know, Abramovich, you know, is is living somewhere not here. Uh, that's a very kind of public example of of uh, of of that. I think the challenge that we face. Uh, and, and and not to not to put put everything at the door of the you know, current administration. The challenge we face is that for very many years we didn't do anything. Mm-hmm. So you know, David Cameron famously said the UK benefits from overregulation <coughs> elsewhere in the world. Well, you know, yes. And so we, we found ourselves as a as a taker of of all this kind all this money. It's very difficult to reverse twenty years of 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 policy. So, what do we do now? to try and kind of move forward in a more more positive way. Um, Lots of talk about unexplained wealth orders. I know they're difficult, they're challenging for the NCA. But it will be good to see more use of those kinds of new new techniques. So I hope that in five years time, we'll look back and go, 2018 was a turning point. We all feel much better about the way in which the UK is fighting um, financial crime. Um, But again, if it doesn't continue to be prioritized as a threat, then in five years' time, we'll say, well, you know, it was a, there was a bit of a blip in 2018, but you know, back to business
0: as usual. Okay, thank you. And uh, Rob, any uh, your three top things? Well,
1: just on that, I, I would say I think what the US Treasury has done on Russia has been more effective than anything that's happened here, so, which, is, which is almost embarrassing, um, given that the crime was here. But uh, on the question, I agree with John. I mean, I think the problem for me is that financial crime is digitizing, um, but it's doing it quicker, faster, in a more agile way than we are. So we're, we're struggling to keep up. And um, there are a couple of things we need to do. Some of the already been set out. Uh, one is about international sharing and cooperation and public and private. Uh, we also need to bake in security by default into software and hardware. Some of that will probably need regulation, maybe EU regulation. Um, uh, But I'm not a huge fan of regulation, but I think in this this case I'm not sure there's any alternative because we're going to be uh, expanding this attack surface in the next couple of years, particularly through Internet of Things, a massive number of processes coming on that have no security at all. Um, So that's something we could get right, we could not repeat the mistakes we made 15 years ago.
0: Okay, and Zaha, in terms of the, the, the techniques that you laid out, are there any easy remedies that you can see, or are there three things that companies can think about?
4: Oh, I don't know if I have top three um, on the spot, but what I would say is that I am a bit biased, and I'll say that um, to improve the defensive side, you do have to look at the offensive side, So, uh, which is basically what I do and we do, um, but it kind of comes back to, Um, what Rob was saying about intelligence-led approaches. So uh, studying the attackers and how they operate and and what they what kind of tools they use um, is really going to give you the insight um, and and let you know their motivation and their capability. Many of these actors operate in the same way that even my team does. They have analysts, they have developers, they have managers and when you uh, kind of dig into that a bit more and find out their roles or their personas um, it, it can tell you a lot about the the way that they're going to conduct their operations. So what I would say is that you, you kind of have to think like the attacker um, and uh, I'll, that will give you a lot more insight into, into how to kind of combat um, those threats.
0: Great. Okay.
4: Um, did you have anything?
2: I was going to so say one last thing I was going to yeah. say. We haven't really talked about kind of fintech in terms of the, the new payments uh, mm-hmm. systems that are, that are turning up. And I think one of, the, one of the things we have to make sure, maybe to, to Rob, to your point, is that as... These new innovations develop; that they are equally aware of the opportunities that they uh, that they present, and, and, and uh, sorry, the threats that, that they present or the opportunities for for financial crime. So we should we should encourage that those developments. But I think we need to make sure that that sector is as aware of the risks mm-hmm. that they present uh, as the traditional sector. Absolutely.
0: Okay, um, I want to leave a good ten minutes or so for uh, questions from you all. Um, there is, I think. A roving microphone. So um, does anyone have any particular questions? Um, we have a lady just here. If you wouldn't mind just introducing yourself when you ask the question. Thanks. Uh, it's Gemma Rogers from FinTrail. Um, to what extent uh, do you panel members think that social media uh, is playing a part in the facilitation and propagation of financial crime? So have you, have you seen any particular um, events that you've studied that have used social media? Um,
4: off the top of my head, um, uh, it's not really my area. Um, what m- might be relevant is um, there are groups that we've seen operate um, by kind of setting up, um, uh, you know, impersonating companies or setting up websites, um, making job profiles and adverts um, and kind of... Uh, pretending that they sell services. So this kind of stuff proliferates over social media as well. Um, though that's not not the origin, but um, they're becoming more creative uh, definitely um, in how they reach out. Uh, and especially in terms of things like muling, um, that's definitely somewhere where. A what now? Oh, money muling. Sorry. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, can you can you explain <laughs> what that so, is? So um, yeah, so when these uh, groups operate, they uh, like I was talking about before, um, to get money out of the system is actually pretty difficult. Um, maybe arguably more so than than the actual intrusions themselves. Um, and which is why we've seen a lot of money in those cases disappear and we are not sure where it went and in terms of it being reported. Um, But uh, so the mules are kind of contracted um, or hired uh, through these through these adverts uh, and and through proliferation over over social media,
1: right. definitely. I see. Uh, yeah, I, mean, I agree with that. I mean, I think obviously the dark web has its own sort of social media. And it's quite interesting if you see a case where somebody may be uh, um, an administrator during the day and have a LinkedIn page and all the rest, um, or maybe hosting domains and working for a company that does that. And then in the dark web is on a kind of different kind of social media selling. Uh, access and exploit so uh, I would. I, I think there is a social media element and I think as I said earlier there's a big uh, element of manipulation of data that can go on through social media. Mm-hmm.
0: And Tom did you have
2: any thoughts? Well just the, the only uh, angle that uh, I'd add is we've obviously looked, looked at it from the perspective of terrorist fundraising mm-hmm. um, but it's you know it's it, it's the same. You're raising profile of an issue, driving people towards certain websites so that they can get the necessary details to make the donations and, and all of that. So I mean, it's it's you know, as we all know from our own use of social media to sponsor me to run the marathon. You know, it's it's a great way of industrialising awareness of your your issue, uh, and therefore raising money.
0: Right. Thank okay. you, John.
3: Did you have any? Only that. Um. You know, when again, going back to this this thought of we built this system so many years ago when. People arrive with a passport copy, and and there was no internet to validate or verify people, uh, or check on people's business activities or other personal attributes. We've got so much more data now that is available, which is freely available, um, in order to be able to both validate and also to be confused by. Um, mm-hmm. So it's a very different world now in which we're operating. The CDD rules, customer due diligence rules, are basically the same twenty five years on from when they were first um, uh, you know put out there. So so. So actually, we and many other institutions do utilize as much data as we can, but making sense of all the noise is sometimes a difficulty as well.
0: Okay, thank you for that. Um, any other questions uh, from the floor? No? Okay, oh yes, we have a gentleman there.
5: Thank you. Good morning, uh, Olivia Kraft from Rusi. I just wanted to come back to um, the comparison between cybercrime and, and financial crime, which are uh, obviously converging, but then there are also um, a few like inherent differences, especially if you think <laughs> about cybercrime as an attack that is generated um, against an institution. so there will be a strong incentive for institutions to, to protect um, their systems and, and their uh, customers' assets. Um, in, in the context of financial crime, there is always this question of the in incentives um, and the various speakers were talking about a need for kind of a new mindset of um, really being more proactive and intelligence led in, in response to, to financial crime. Um, how, how do you think, this, this mindset could be encouraged and, and promoted for um, all, all actors and especially financial institutions to, to think in financial crime more in terms of a risk to mitigate rather than a compliance exercise. Um, and it has long been described even by, by authorities as, as a compliance field. We're slowly moving away from that, but where do you see the, um, the main room for, for improvement in kind of changing the messaging about, about um, financial crime. Mm-hmm.
0: And that's kind of a perennial debate, isn't it? Yeah, it's a
5: great question. Mm-hmm. I mean, my title is financial crime compliance. Actually,
3: compliance is what I do as my basic minimum. so my minimum standard. What I really do is fight financial crime. Um, but actually, we're tested in two different ways. We're tested by our regulatory compliance, which is actually tough because the regulations are extremely extensive. If you go to the US, you have to pick 500 pages for the exam manual. Look at the GMLSG here. It's 450 pages. right? So we've got that, which we have to comply with, which we try our very, very best to do. Um, But actually that's not necessarily the same. It's a a proxy, but it's not the same as fighting financial crime. And so what we try and do in addition to that is actually focus very much on how we can be effective in in preventing, detecting, and reporting. And we are actually very effective on preventing, detecting, and reporting, but you'll never see that. You'll only see the time that we didn't or when we weren't fully compliant. Reorienting that and making sure that it's clear that our principal purpose ought to be preventing, detecting, and reporting um, is really important. And I think that comes to Tom's point around priorities. Right? If the public sector tells us what the priorities are, we can reorient ourselves to deliver to those priorities. We've got great capability. We've got tremendous resources. And we need to make sure that all of us are putting them in the right place to have the best effect. And that's not necessarily you know, um,
1: what we're doing right now. Well, I agree with, with John. I mean I think changing the culture in a company and uh, tackling the individual uh, behavior thing is really tough. Um, we've done it in health and safety and over the, the decades uh, I think we're still at the early stages on cyber and there's a, a lot further to go um, so uh, lots of companies are doing the right things but unseen as, as, as John says Okay
0: uh,
1: lot gentlemen at the back now.: uh, Hi Peter Jenkins
2: from uh, Brit Lloyd's. It's probably really a question for John. um, And apologies, it's not really directed at threat, but more because John's on the panel. Um, Within the banks, you obviously take, you know, the banks take credit risk the whole time. Is there any linkage between what you do and your credit function in terms of evaluating particularly correspondent banks in terms of their cyber protections, given the number of attacks that have been made against foreign banks, um, particularly in the developing world where you're very strong?
3: Yeah, there is. So um, increasingly cross-risk Cooperation is happening. Actually, I work for the chief risk officer, and the credit officers sit very close to me and my team. We have a risk rating for clients. They have a risk rating for clients. Actually, it's interesting to see the correlation between my risk rating model and their risk rating model. And increasingly, um, my high-risk clients, from a financial crime perspective, you probably don't really want to be that exposed to them on credit, because actually, you know, when you want to say goodbye, um, you know, you don't want to have to wait five years or try and get your money back. So increasingly there is that. Also additionally on our correspondent banking platforms, we are increasingly looking at things like cyber resilience um, in relation to our correspondence and also things like whether they're making themselves available to crypto exchanges and other modern, um, uh, you know, m- modern players like that as, as producing or introducing an additional risk into the international financial system or into our network.
1: Any other thoughts from the panel on that what, what, only only that it goes back to this point of you know, who you're connected to is now becoming your biggest your biggest threat and assessing that that is quite difficult traditionally you've you sent questionnaires to people and asked them how good their security is and frankly the better the score the less you' know, the more worried you should be with. <laughs> so uh, trying to assess technically uh, from the outside uh, a, a vendor or a, a supplier is, is difficult tough, but still. possible. That would say, statement the blinding
2: obvious, but the system is only as strong as its weakest link. And it's, and it's interesting when we sit here in in London. You kind of hope that the banks know what they're what they're doing, but you don't have to go very far from here as a financial centre you know, to find standards which are, you know, frankly, well, they're, they're 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 dreadful. And so what happens? And not to sing the praises of Standard Chartered, but you know it's up to banks like Standard Chartered to go out to those countries and say, look, these are the kinds of standards that, that we expect. This is how, if we can help you get better, then that's in our interests. So this academy that Standard Chartered runs. Mm-hmm. You know, if, if, you, if we can get you to raise your standards, if we can get you to think about the kinds of risks that we, we think about, then the system starts to, to, to get stronger. So it's not just a matter of building a big high wall around yourself. You've actually right. got to help the rest of the system uh, I think, um, as well.
3: Yeah, it's really it's really important. I mean, we come up with a global set of standards which are really hard to comply with, uh, and we expect banks like StanChart to comply with them, which which we can. Um, but you try and take that to our 1,600 correspondents all around the world, and you say, please um, work to improve your standards. This is in places where we call home: Zambia, Tanzania, Kenya, Botswana, you know, even Cambodia, even Malaysia, Indonesia, China you know, all these kind of places. They're not at the same kind of level, so you either have a choice. We either lower the standards for institutions or countries that don't have that capability that we have. We either do that, and we've discussed that with Fadef as a proposal, and they've said, no, we're not gonna do that. We're gonna keep the standards as high, so any bank, tier one bank, has to have the same standards, or any tier three bank or tier four bank has to have the same standards as a tier one bank. That's tough, I think. That's a tough thing to, um, to impose upon people. Uh, and then you get, you know, some of the corollary that is de-risking when people don't feel comfortable that those banks are in that space. We try and bridge that gap by doing the best we can on capacity building in our cross-border banking network, which is which is really important for us. That we um, we try and keep people in the system and improve the banks that are coming through us. Um, but that is a journey as well, and not every bank makes it.
0: Mm-hmm. I mean, this time last week I was in Copenhagen for the Danske Bank report, and you know I think it should have definitely rung alarm bells when you had JP Morgan in 2013, and then even Deutsche Bank in 2015, saying, this looks a bit too hot for us.
2: <laughs> okay. I, I'm, I'm a mate. So I was part of the team at JP Morgan in 2013 that was looking at these relationships in, in, in the Baltics. And that was, as you say, that was in 2013. And yeah, nothing happened. So
0: There we are. All right, well, I, I'm afraid we're out of time. It's a fascinating discussion. Um, it just remains for me to ask you to thank the panel in the normal way. Thank you. <laughs>